This summer, Ilse and I spent a week up in Scotland. Uh, my son Toby, who was here a couple of years ago, uh, celebrated his high school graduation, and, and we said it's probably going to be the last time he goes on vacation with the old ones. So we told him, pick a place and we'll go with you for a week. And he said, well, let's go to, to Scotland. And so we got to Edinburgh, and the first thing we noted was that this is actually a special year for the Brits, because all of Britain celebrates the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. And so wherever you go, there are signs and pictures, and in every public function, like the big tattoo of Edinburgh that we went to, um, there are things commemorating February 8, 1952, which is the beginning of her reign. Now, in, in uh, our days, you can travel through time really quickly by going on the Internet. So, so one of the things you can watch is, um, is a video of the proclamation of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. And it's actually pretty impressive because... What you see is this enormous crowd over in London waiting for the queen and ready to hail the new queen. And then you see this whole bunch of dignitaries, you know, in uniforms and with golden helmets and silver helmets and some of them big feathers on the helmet. And so the big whiz, you know. And they're all standing on the palace balcony, and then there's one guy who's particularly nice, nicely dressed. And he reads the proclamation of the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And then there's a whole bunch of people with trumpets, long trumpets, heralds, and they sound the fanfare at the beginning of the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And so the reign of Queen Elizabeth is proclaimed and all the dignitaries shout, God save the queen! And all the people cheer, long live the queen! And you know, so it is with all kings and all queens. Sometimes we sing in church, the king comes. Well, you know, a king doesn't just come. A king is proclaimed. And when the king is proclaimed, there are fanfares that are sounded, and there's a herald that announces the reign of the new king so that everybody knows there is a new king, and uh, everybody comes and rejoices and greets him. And the proclamation means his power is praised, and his glory is displayed in great splendor. And his reign is declared to his people so that they know this king from now on will rule over us. A true king has a law. A king has a law that expresses his character and his will so that the people know how to live by this law in order to honor and please him. And all this must be proclaimed so that the world knows the king is here. Now, all of this because our text this morning is such a royal proclamation, the proclamation of a new king. And I'm going to read you 
The key verses from Matthew chapter 11 first, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many of you have heard these verses before? Most, right? And have you ever thought that this is a royal proclamation? Probably not, because when you hear royal proclamation, you expect something very solemn, very ceremonial, very stately, a great proclamation of power and glory. And that's not what I have just read. And there's indeed a real danger that we misunderstand this passage because we too often, we read it out of context. We just pick those three verses and then we read them and then they, we focus on words like meek and lowly and light and it's all very sweet. And we read this and we think, yeah, this is about Jesus, my sweet Savior. And it's all about me and sweet Jesus. And that's not what the passage is about. Of course, these words are here, but they're only part of what Jesus is saying. The gospel, the gospel is that Jesus is your Savior and your King. And as your Savior, Jesus is sweet. But as your King, he claims your life, your entire life. And he wants to rule over it. And the gospel tells us that you cannot have the sweet Savior without accepting the King. And therefore, let me read more of this passage in order to understand that this is indeed a royal proclamation. So as I'm going to read Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30, would you please stand as we listen to the word of God? Matthew 11 from verse 20, then he, Jesus, began to upbraid the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. 
All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for calling us this morning. Thank you that your invitation stands. Come. And thank you, Lord, for speaking to us this morning. And Lord, we ask you that you bless us this morning and open our hearts and our ears so that we may hear and understand what you want to teach us this morning. Amen. You may be seated. So, Matthew 11 marks an important point, a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the chapter of the royal proclamation, the proclamation of Jesus as the new king. If you look at the Gospel up to this point, Jesus had already become famous as a preacher and a powerful preacher, one who had convicted many sinners, one who had done many great signs, healed the sick and gave sight to the blind. A great pe preacher, no less than that, but also no more than that. At the beginning of chapter 11, we hear again from the other great preacher of his time, John the Baptist. Now, John, we would nowadays say, John was a fundamentalist. John was a man who knew no compromise when it came to the Word of God. John was a man who would not mince matters even when he preached to the mighty and the powerful of his time. And John paid dearly, first with his freedom and then with his life, for the comments he made on the unlawful marriage of King Herod, the man who ruled at the time. So, at this point in chapter 11, John is sitting in jail and he's thinking about all the news he heard about Jesus. Now, John had actually recognized Jesus as the Messiah, that is, the anointed of God, the King of Israel, when John baptized Jesus. But now he's sitting in jail and he's having doubts. If Jesus was really the Messiah, why didn't he come and intervene and get the trusting and faithful servant of the Lord, John, out of jail? Why didn't he punish the disgraceful King Herod? And so moved by such doubts, John sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one that should come? In other words, are you really the Messiah? Or do we look for another? And Jesus answers his question by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, 700 years before, had proclaimed what would happen when God would visit his people, Israel, as the king. And in Isaiah, we read the blind 
receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. These are all the things that Jesus actually had done. Now, we have to understand that at the time of Jesus, the book of Isaiah was enormously popular among the Jews. And the people who heard this, these words immediately understood what Jesus was saying in plain language, namely, John, just look what's happening. The king is here. I am the king. That's what Jesus is saying. And then in the following verses of Matthew 11, Jesus declares to the multitudes surrounding him that John the Baptist was the messenger or the herald who would go before the Messiah according to Malachi chapter 3 where it says, Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And then Jesus says, John is also Elijah, the prophet, who according to Malachi is to come before the arrival of the Messiah. So again, in plain words, Jesus is saying, the Messiah, the anointed of the Lord, the King of Israel is here. And those who understood knew what Jesus was proclaiming, I am the King. And then Jesus turns to the cities of Galilee where he had preached and done mighty works, most of his mighty works actually it says in the text, but they hadn't recognized him. They had not recognized him as king and they had not followed his commandment, repent and believe in the gospel. And therefore Jesus pronounces his woes over them. Woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. You will end up in hell. And the calamity of Sodom will be more tolerable than your downfall. Now, people, these are the words of a king. Because what these words say is, if you don't recognize my command, you don't recognize my kingdom, and you will perish. So who then are the people of this new king? Jesus says they are those and only those to whom God has granted it to recognize Jesus as the new king. God has hidden this from the wise and prudent, from the people who know everything or think they know everything, from the people who master their lives perfectly. Now, at this point in the gospel, of course, this statement that Jesus makes already has a certain history, right? Because at the birth of Christ, when the Magis come to Jerusalem, they ask all the wise and the prudent, the Pharisees and the scribes, worse than you born king of the Jews. And they have no clue because they don't understand what's going on. God has revealed it to simple people. The shepherds in the field at his birth. People who have no particular position in this world. People who are disregarded by the wise and the prudent as fools. People who, like little babies, simply listen to the word of their father and trust in his power and mercy. Thus, says Jesus, it seemed good 
to God the Father. So God as the sovereign creator and Lord of this world has determined who belongs to the people of King Jesus. Now, you want to note that Jesus is not saying that a wise and prudent person cannot be a citizen of his kingdom. I think Martin Luther was pretty wise and prudent, and yet I also think he was a believer. So we do not have to give up rational thinking and intelligent behavior and become fools in order to be citizens in the kingdom of Christ. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't go to college. The point is that all those who pride in their wisdom and prudence will not recognize Jesus. Because his proclamation as king is so completely different from what the wise and the prudent expect that they just don't get it. You know, they expect what you see when Queen Elizabeth was proclaimed. All the dignitaries with the helmets standing there and making a point of it. And what do they see? They see a country preacher poor and talking to simple country folk. And they say, no, 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 no. That's not a king. They just don't get it. Being wise and prudent, having a PhD, and I tell you, not even a PhD in economics, is a, not a condition for being a citizen in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's good, because if it were, all the proud academics would have taken the kingdom for them and not left any space for anybody else. But being simple-minded is also no obstacle to it. It is God who chooses the citizens of this kingdom. And his choice is based on love and mercy alone, not on merit, not on academic degrees. And the chosen ones take it like little babies. And how do little babies take something? They just smile. They're happy. They're thankful. The reign of King Jesus is founded on the fact that the Father in heaven has delivered all things to him. As Jesus says elsewhere, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. And only those to whom Jesus grants it can know God. Now, knowing God in the biblical sense is not something about intelligent insights. It has little to do with brains. To know somebody is to have an intimate relationship, a loving relationship with that person. The key verse in the Bible is Adam knew his wife and a child was born. That's to know somebody, to have a, an intimate, loving relationship with that person. And so what Jesus is saying, no one can have a close and loving relationship with God unless Jesus gives it to him. And so again, if you hear these words, there's no doubt the person who speaks claims power. The person who speaks proclaims himself as a king. Because if you want to live and truly live and eternally live with God your Father, you must recognize and acknowledge Jesus as king. So this is a royal proclamation. Now, 
Every king has a law. Queen Elizabeth has a law. And when she was proclaimed queen, the law was read to the people. Now, not the whole law. It was summarized. So it wouldn't take three days. But it was announced, this is the law of the queen. And it's the same with King Jesus. In the following verses, then, King Jesus declares his law, the principles of his kingdom. And the number one principle of his kingdom is, come. The first principle of the kingdom of Christ is an invitation. One does not become a citizen of his kingdom by birth, which is the way you are citizens of the United States, or at least most of you, I guess. One does not become a citizen of the kingdom of Christ by coercion, the way many people became citizens of the Soviet Union after World War II. One does not become a citizen of the kingdom of uh, Christ by one's own efforts, one does become a citizen of the kingdom of Christ by invitation. The king calls, come. And now it's up to you to make a decision, to follow his invitation, or to stay in your own kingdom and try to be your own master. And people, don't get me wrong here, no one will recognize Jesus as king and hear his invitation come unless God grants it to him or to her. Every loving relationship with our Father in heaven and with Jesus Christ starts on the initiative of him while we were still dead in our sins, as Paul says. And again, woe to those who hear the call and reject him as king. This is a matter of life and death. It's not something, huh, I have an invitation, I might take it or postpone it. It's a matter of life and death. But it remains an invitation. God does not force you to come. God can prepare your heart to accept the invitation. And that's my experience you know, when Elsa and I came here, we were not Christians. We knew nothing about Christ except what we had learned in sort of traditional church. But, but we had no living relationship with Christ. And, and then I remember the day when I sat in Grace Covenant Church here in Bloomington. And in the middle of the sermon, I heard the call of Christ, come. And it seemed to me the most natural thing to accept his invitation. And that's said by a person who just a few months before was, had no clue. Okay? So God had worked in my heart and my life and prepared me for this. But there's no force involved. And also no, none of my smarts. Jesus invites all that labor hard and are heavy laden. The Greek word for labor does not signify an instance of hard work or a heavy weekly workload. It describes a person that is constantly laboring day in, day out, and even at night. A person who is tired and deeply disappointed because 
he realizes that all his labor is in vain. A person who not just once on a particularly hard day has reached the end of all his strength and forces, but always experiences that he doesn't have enough strength to go on and carry all the burdens on his back. A person who does not have everything under control, but one who fails desperately in the face of all the demands of his life. A person who does not live up to all that society and his friends and he himself expect of him. And does anybody in this room fit that description? And maybe now you say, well, what about those who don't feel like they labor? What about me if I don't feel like I have a heavy burden on my shoulder? Well, Christ doesn't say, come to me all who feel like they labor. Christ says, all who labor. And even if you don't feel the labor, compared to the life in his presence and his kingdom, you do labor. You just don't know it. Okay? Some people labor, labor and are heavy laden because of a deep suffering, because of an illness, because of a deep spiritual need. Some people labor and are heavy laden because of a heavy guilt, the memory of a particular sin that doesn't lose its grip on their lives and everything seems to turn around that. And maybe that's not even a particular sin that they committed, but that their husband or their wife committed and it holds its grip on, on their lives. Bunyan's Christian was a man like that, a man who carried an enormous burden on his back which he just couldn't get rid of. But then there's more at stake still. Jesus also has in mind the hard labor of a legalistic life under the law of God. At his time, many pious Jews read the law of God as a catalog of narrow, formal, strict rules and prohibitions designed to make human life hard and miserable. And if we read the, the law that way, it does become a heavy burden to us. And therefore, the Jews talked about the yoke of the law and the burden of the law. The Pharisees at the time of Jesus were placing heavy burdens on the shoulders of their fellow Jews, Jesus says making the law intolerable for them instead of teaching them the mercy of God. And Jesus says, all those who labor and are heavy laden, come to me, and he promises to give rest. Now, the Greek word here means to refresh or to give new strength. So Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll take the burden off your back. He says, I will refresh you and give you new strength. And it's important for us to understand that so we avoid disappointment. If you follow his invitation and you submit to his reign, you remain a sinner in this life. You remain a weak person in this life. You remain an imperfect person in this life. A person who toils with the various burdens and pressures of life. 
Some spiritual sufferings do not simply disappear when you follow the call of Christ, but they become more tolerable. Some people are healed when they follow Jesus' call, but you know, even the healthy ones live towards their death. But they are in a more tolerable state. And that Jesus has forgiven my sins doesn't make my mistakes and my transgressions undone. And I have to live with the consequences. But in a more tolerable manner. So I will give you rest does not mean I will promote you to paradise immediately. That's the goal of our lives with Jesus. But we're not there yet. But one thing is absolutely clear. If you, call Christ, if you follow Christ's call and you submit to his reign, you have the full assurance that you will reach the goal of your life. You will be in paradise with him because we, through Jesus and with Jesus, inherit the kingdom of God. We will be there. And until we are there, Jesus gives us enough strength to make it through all the burdens and toils and pressures of our lives until we're safe and sound with him. Now, Christians confess that the church of Jesus Christ is part of his kingdom, part of the kingdom of God in this world. And that's true of every good church. That's true of Clearnote Church in Bloomington. It is part of Christ's kingdom in this world. If we honestly acknowledge Jesus as our king, then his invitation, come, must be our mission. We should have the words, come, written in big letters over the door, on the walls, on the sign out there, come. Because Jesus on this day is still calling people who labor hard and carry the burden of sin on their backs. And he wants them to come. And where should they come if not to his church? And in every home where small groups meet, you should have big letters on the walls, come, on the outside walls, that is. And you know, every church has a tendency to build a fence around itself and walls and put up signs, stay out. Because every church thinks that, hey, we're a good group of people and we have sufficient numbers. We don't need more. New people are just a nuisance, right? And it's true. A church needs a building with walls so that the bad influences, the thieves and the, the evil shepherds that Jesus talks about are kept outside. But this must be on the door. Come! the invitation of Christ to all those who do not know him yet. And if the church is a part of the kingdom of Christ, then his promise, I will give you rest, is our mission. Jesus commands us to refresh and strengthen each other in everyone who comes here so that we're better able to carry our burdens. Concretely, to meet a young woman who just got pregnant with a pregnancy that, because she's in college, doesn't fit her life plan at all at this moment. 
to meet that person with real help and encouragement rather than with accusations and scolding. Over in Germany, I often tell people about the fact that many of you regularly go downtown to the abortion clinic and picket. And picket not just to shout bad words at the people who go in, but picket in order to talk to the young women and to promise them help and give them encouragement to go the way of life with Jesus and save their, their babies. And what a joy it is when one of them decides to save the life of her baby. Tim, two weeks ago, said that in this church we honor women who have children out of wedlock. Well, what he meant was we honor women who decided the right thing, namely to give birth to that baby instead of killing it like so many other do today. But then what can it mean to honor them if not to accept them lovingly into our community and to help them? Jesus calls upon us as his people to make the burdens of sin and guilt more tolerable to each other and to all who come here. Concretely, to meet a woman who suffers from the memory of having had an abortion with the assurance that Jesus will forgive her sin if she accepts him as her savior and king and not to meet her with accusations and threats of punishment. If the church is a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, it is his desire that this be a place where we share our sorrows and pressures and guilt and burdens, that we become a community sharing what we labor in and what makes us heavy laden. This is my commandment, Jesus says in John 15, that you love one another as I have loved you, and what's in view here is not the sense of warm feeling, hey, I like you. You don't have to like each other. You have to love each other. And what Jesus means is support each other, help each other. Put the well-being of the other above your own well-being. That's the love he's speaking of. And may God bless us and grant us that we learn to trust each other and give each other rest in that way. Number two principle in Jesus' law is learn. And learn, first of all, means, hey, you're not perfect yet, but that doesn't matter. You can come to Christ and take his invitation, even if you're not perfect. That's okay. But learn also means if you follow his invitation, his command is, from now on, you're my disciple, and I want you to grow in faith, and I want you to imitate me. Now, as a teacher, I know the number one principle of learning is you have to be able and willing to question yourself. I've had lots of students who were so convinced that they already knew everything that they learned nothing because they were not willing to question their knowledge. And if you, you're not willing to question your behavior and your character and think that maybe what you're doing is not right, 
you won't learn anything from Jesus Christ. So the number one principle is question yourself and then look at Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's a lifelong learning. It doesn't stop when you're graduating from college. Even Lane is still learning. Even Bob is still learning. And George is. And we will all keep learning until one day we face the Master. That's when we can stop learning. Reading the Gospels, we see Jesus as a man who has brought his entire life in all his, its facets and in every moment in perfect line with the will of God. We see a man who has entrusted himself completely to the Father in heaven. We don't see a man who goes strictly and formalistically to the letter of the law like the Pharisees. We see a man who always asks God, what is your will? and then trustingly acts according to it, to it. Even in the hour of his death, Jesus says to the Father, your will be done. And Jesus calls himself meek or gentle and lowly in heart. Meek is a person who meets others in humility and respects them. Lowly in heart is a person who takes his own well-being as less important than the well-being of other people. And so learning from Jesus is to imitate Jesus in this, in this way, to bring our lives ever more in line with the will of God, not just on Sunday, throughout the whole week, not just in small group, on campus, at your workplace, when you're with your neighbors, not just in the choice of your bedtime reading, even in the choice of what you're watching on TV with your friends. Learning from Jesus means to respect other people and place their well-being above your own. Or learning from Jesus is learning to love God and to love other human beings. And what does Jesus command us to learn? He calls upon the people who come to him to take up his yoke and his burden. And so for the people at the time, that immediately meant take up my law. Now, what is the law of Jesus Christ? If you go back to the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says it's the law that God gave to Moses, to his people. And not a tittle of it will change. And Jesus says, I did not come to change the law or abolish it, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, which means to fill it with content so that we understand what it really means. And then Jesus says, oh, and by the way, my interpretation of the law is it's just not just that you don't sleep with another woman. It's also that you don't look at another woman in a lusting way and not even on the Internet. Okay, so his interpretation of the law goes far beyond the formal interpretation of the Pharisees. And then at the end of that sermon, Jesus says, You shall be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. And that's his standard of the law. And then you think about it and say, Well, but... How can he say that my yoke is easy if his standard of perfection is that high? 
but we have no chance to ever reach it. And the important thing is that we learn from Jesus what the law truly is. It's not a rigid collection of, of rules and regulations. It's not designed to suffocate it. And we don't read it as a book that we have to fulfill every point to be saved. No. Jesus has saved us by what he did on the cross. But we do read the book of the law as a guidebook to a life that honors and pleases God and therefore a life that makes us happy, a beautiful life. If you want to know how to live a beautiful life, go to the book of law. That's what it tells you. If we learn from Jesus to practice the many, many parts of the law that deal with the care for the weak, it will teach us to be as gentle, meek, and lowly in heart as Jesus was. The law teaches us to lead a beautiful life with God at the center of all we do and think and are. And therefore, the law is easy or as you could translate the Greek, it's helpful. It's useful for us because it helps us lead a beautiful life. If the church is a part of the kingdom of God, it should and it must be the place where we strive to be disciples of Christ and learn to live such beautiful lives. And if you have followed his invitation, come, then it's now time to start learning from him. His claim on your life as king is that you learn from him to let your life be more and more submitted to and guided by the law of God. Now, learn and I will give you rest have a lot to do with each other. That's something I learned when I first came here. When I first came here, I had taught at universities in Germany and the way you teach is somebody makes a mistake and you scold him. And you make fun of him in the classroom. And so if a student says to me, well, France is in Africa, then I say, you're stupid. Dummkopf. That means stupid in German. Okay? Now, when I first came here, that's what I did in the classroom at IU, and then my chairman came upon me and said, Jürgen, that's not the way you teach here. Okay, so I learned what you do here. If a student makes a mistake, you say, good try. <laughs> now try again. And if a student says, I think that France is in Africa, you say, well, that's interesting. Let's think about that a little more, right? <laughs> now, the point is, you don't want to discourage students. And I know you can overdo this, and I don't preach low academic standards, and I'm not in favor of great inflation at all. But my experience is, if my students know that they can make a mistake, and it won't have bad consequences, they actually perform a lot better because they have courage. 
And certainly Jesus did not teach a law with low standards and no discipline. But consider how he taught the law of God. When Jesus met people who had committed terrible sins, like the adulteress that the Pharisees were ready to stone, did he make fun of her? Did he condemn her in public? No. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Therefore, go and sin no more. Okay? So the principle is forgiveness of the transgressions in the past. And then the command to do right from now on and to learn from the king. If the church is part of the kingdom of God, it must be a place where people are not afraid of making mistakes, where they know they will be forgiven and told to go on from now to learn from Jesus Christ. And don't get me wrong, I don't say that we should abolish the law of God or that we should go for a soft version of it. And I'm not advocating a church without discipline. Stephen wouldn't let me preach here if I did. But my point is, let's learn from Jesus on how to teach the law. Jesus, by the way, also rebuked Peter when that was necessary. But let's learn from him and teach the law with love and encouragement. Come and learn. The two commands of the king are under his promise. You shall find rest for your souls. Now, as a teacher, I give promises to my students. I say, if you take this class and you learn the materials, you will be able to master the following challenges. And Jesus is saying, if you follow my commandments, you come and you learn. The promise is you shall find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls is not graveyard peace. And it's not complete stillness. It's a state of mind. It's sort of the happy, serene peace of mind a person has who knows I'm under the reign of my king. And my king will do everything for me to make sure that I reach the goal of my life. That's rest for my soul. And the closer we come to the king, the more of this rest he will give to you. The more you learn from the king to live a beautiful life, the more of this rest you will enjoy. If the church is part of the kingdom of God, it is our mission that people come come here and find rest. The important thing about the church is not how many activities we have. The important thing is that this is a place where sinful people can come, meet their king, and throw the burden of their lives at his feet. The important thing is that people, sinful people, come here and start learning from the king and find rest for their souls. That they feel encouraged and compelled to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And if Cleano Church is that kind of a place, then it truly is part of the kingdom of God. And we can find rest in the assurance that our king is well pleased with it. And that he will one day greet us with open arms and with a smile and say, Well done, 
Come into my kingdom and be with me forever. And brothers and sisters, could there be anything more beautiful, more wonderful than that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you as our king, our savior, and our king who has invited us to come into your kingdom. Lord, we thank you from the depth of our hearts for what you have done for us at the cross. That you have granted us the gift of life. And we acknowledge, Lord, that so often we're not willing to learn. And we're not willing to open our homes and our church to others. We're not willing to give rest to the people who come here. Lord, would you please soften our hearts and make sure that we're good disciples, that everyone here in this church has growth in their faith, and that many people in this community of Bloomington look at Cleonote Church and say, this is a place where I can meet my Savior and my King. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us. And thank you that we can be your children. Amen.